While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. actually wanted to talk to you about caffeine <laughs> what all right what do you want to ask about what is it like to give it up because i'm addicted to it hard <laughs> well like like i said to you and I, I mean i didn't tell this to any of our listeners so it'll be new to them <laughs> is that the, <laughs> the secret to quitting is to drink so much diet coke that it feels like your body is eating itself from the inside out and so what <laughs> What worked for me was getting to the point where keeping like to keep drinking caffeine will feel worse than the withdrawal that would come with well, caffeine. And I will say you did pick a version of caffeine that is hard on the body. Yeah. Like I I don't like coffee. I don't know. Like I feel like I could get into it if I wanted, but I don't really want to. Well, you've it's got okay. you've got a beer oh. taste. You you know I were talking about whiskey the other day. You don't you don't I think have room in your brain for another set of opinions. You've got enough opinions <laughs> as it is. <laughs> I've acquired enough taste right now. I all I want is like tastes that go down easy. That's fair. I'm gonna yeah. before uh, we start the show, uh, which we already did. I'm gonna apologize that I've trying to kick a cough so. Uh, if I'm coughing a little bit this week, that's that's on me, guys. Welcome Ooh. to Overdue. <laughs> this is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Uh, and each week we read a book and talk about it. But first I want to keep talking to Andrew about caffeine. Okay. Um, <laughs> so we been... did 100 episodes and then the show like imploded after that. Like, I know. The wheels are just, the wheels are coming off. I know. We all decided to make life changes. I grew a weird mustache. Uh, that's did not you... true. Wait. No, I was going to say your face looks the same. It looks I just the... clicked I was... over to that window to check your mustache <laughs> out. Mustache game still looks on point, so. <laughs> it's a beard game, not a mustache game. Well, I mean, my mustache is part of a beard, right? Well, it's that's like true. one of the the building blocks but a beard is not a mustache andrew what is the hardest thing about giving up caffeine that sweet sweet taste of aspartame part of it is just like with diet coke it has no calories because you so you could just drink infinity of it and it has no negative effects on your waistline except for when it dissolves your (laughs) stomach and and you don't have a waistline anymore because <laughs> you don't have a waist. You're just yeah. you just are waist. Yeah. Okay. Um. So part of it is just like not having something to just like drink out of habit, which I've replaced with water, which I guess is fine. Like water. That's like good. what the world gave you to drink. So I think yeah. that's fine. <laughs> um. And the other the other hard thing is just like the amount of sleep I get in a given night has a lot more to do with how I feel. In a given day, like there's not this this artificial jolt I can give myself when I got like four hours of sleep and I'm just kind of dragging, which is what today has been. Wait, were you drinking jolt? No, no, I was drinking diet Cause coke. Because that, that's said. the source of all caffeine is jolt. 
fire member or anything <laughs> from middle they school. Even, <laughs> they don't even, it's, caffeine isn't even a thing. It's just like jolt. And it's caffeine is what jolt. you call like essence of jolt. In the neo future, we will all drink jolt to stay alive. Uh, when we are androids, that's what I learned. In my research for Philip K. Dick, Andrew, what <laughs> book did you read this week? This week, I read Philip K. Dick's The Man in the High Castle. Okay. Um, before we talk about that book, that's then that's an actual novel. It's not a short story, right? Yeah, it's a real novel. Okay. It's a real, a real f- big boy novel, a real. chapter book. So, <laughs> it's a big old chapter book. Um, <laughs> who the heck is Philip K. Dick, and uh, why should we care about him? Philip K. Richard, or Philip K. Dick to his friends, was born <laughs> in 1928. Okay, he died in 1982. Okay, and he's primarily known as a as a sci-fi author. Yes, and um, High Castle, and I think a lot of his other books kind of straddle this line between science fiction and um, like what if history. Like the uh, main the main thrust alternate of this book history is, fiction or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like the main thrust of this book is what if. The Axis powers won World War Two. Okay, and we'll talk more about that later. Okay, yeah, that's that's like that's where this this particular show is coming from. Um, he published forty four novels, uh, one hundred twenty one short stories. Um, a lot of his books had been like adapted into movies, or and if not books, also short stories as well. I think right, that, right, right. That was even more surprising to me was how many of his short stories had made their ways into made their way into film. Right, so like Total Recall, uh, Minority po- Report, uh, Blade Runner, uh, Scanner Darkly, those are all movies that are based on stuff that he wrote. Uh, please, Andrew, The Adjustment Bureau, the hit film starring John Slattery from Mad Men. Come on. Oh, yeah, I forgot that was And Matt Damon, come on. <laughs> Actually, I never saw that film. I just... I think I did see that, and I forgot <laughs> until literally this very moment. It had Emily Blunt in it. This, she's cool. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw this like, in theaters. <laughs> but I remember, I don't remember anything about it. You were riding on that Madman hype train. You were like, I'll see it anything that Silver Fox is in. Yeah, man, give me give me John Slattery, give me Vincent Carthizer, Theser, Pete Campbell, that's who he plays. <laughs> He's also uh David Boreanaz's son on Angel. And he was a really frustrating character. So there's that. David Boreanaz's real dad in real life does used to do the news here in Philly. He might still do the news. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's great. What's his name? I don't remember. Okay. Cool. I can't help you there. <laughs> this is going great. Yeah, this is going great. Um, so what else do we need to know, need to know about Philip Kindred Dick? That's his middle name, Andrew. Kindred. Know, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good middle I think name. it's he a was, maiden name from his mom, but it's a pretty good name. Yeah. He was um he was born with a twin sister, Jane, who died six weeks after they were both born. And that seems to people seem to think that that was uh like a recurring theme in his work. Yeah, yeah, like apparently and not not so much in this book but in others like the a phantom twin. Yes. Kind of comes up a few times. Well, you mentioned earlier that he um he was primarily known as a science fiction writer and an alternate alternate history writer. He had really set out to make it in the quote-unquote literary mainstream of the mm-hmm. time uh and 
you know, submitted several manuscripts and books. I think one novel ended up being published, uh, but he got a whole bunch, a whole mess of manuscripts sent back to him in like the early 60s, right around when this book actually came out and he kind of took off as a sci-fi writer. Yeah, so this this book, um, it was published in 1962. It won a Hugo Award. Okay. Um, and he was, you know, from from fairly early on, he was a respected author in like sci-fi circles, but he was never very financially successful because, yeah, like you said, he had trouble finding um, mainstream publishers who would even, you know, publish his stuff. Mo- most of the time he could only find like these kind of rinky-dink, smaller genre publishers like Ace. Oh, yeah. Publisher who yeah, yeah. A lot of his stuff. Or like if you've ever read any Tor books books. Yeah. Like that that's a big fantasy Tor imprint. books. Yeah. That's my middle school <laughs> childhood, man. I don't I know. know. Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time Star- turns. I think they published a whole bunch, a whole mess of everything is a mess a whole mess of star wars books also that sounds that sounds accurate <laughs> um and and personally like there there's one thing i just found interesting but that, that we aren't going to talk about a whole lot i don't think is that he was married five times yeah he was married a lot the first time for six months and then um three that lasted six years one that lasted four years and one that lasted nine years yeah he was married a lot and I think when he died, he was not married. No. Um, one of them, uh, his second wife, Cleo, was like a socialist and a left winger in the 50s. And so they were like targeted by the FBI and maybe became, you know, like friends with an FBI agent during that time. He demonstrated, I quote unquote demonstrated, I guess, against the Vietnam War. Um, by uh, like pledging not to pay his taxes, which is like an interesting. I had never thought of that as like a form of social protest. Sure, because you don't think about that. People are just like, ah, oh, my taxes. I gotta pay them. The uh, the taxes. But <laughs> like the idea that you would just like withhold your taxes as like social protest. I hadn't really thought of that before. Well, the IRS took his car, so well, let that work out okay. for you, Philip K. Dick. Well, I don't have a car, so I'm going to protest with my taxes, I guess. Um, <laughs> so that's fair. But, yeah, um, I, I think the I've kind of got far afield there. I wanted to talk about the FBI thing because one of the things that seems to be a running theme of a lot of his books is this conspiracy theory idea that a lot of his protagonists are kind of – they're all taking the – blue pill the red pill matrix reference they're all taking the pill that tells you what the real world is yeah whichever one the the <laughs> matrix one is the one that the one that Lawrence Fishburne gives you and then you go into a bathtub where you're plugged into things not where you wake up eating fake steak but you think it's real so you like it so it's all good yeah um yeah there's a lot of like what is real and what isn't real, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in the book, but uh, a lot of them center on this kind of like global conspiracy theory kind of stuff. This metaphysical well, that's, that's conspiracy theory stuff. Not even conspiracy theory so much in, in this book, but um, he had this personal belief that the world around us was not entirely real. Yes. And that, that we, we had no way of like definitively proving whether things were real or not real which 
I I can kind of I can wrap my head around. I don't know that I could get to believing it myself, but like perception gotta open your mind Andrew. so much has so much to do like you just gotta like, smoke if, some more weed and you'll understand gotta, i just gotta blaze one <laughs> and then i'll get it but i just the the thing that i think about is just like being afraid of the dark okay okay and so like there is there is stuff that is real but your mind plays tricks on you and, and you can't see things and you just kind of invent stuff to to fill in blanks and yeah and, and if i take that approach to his beliefs i can kind of get behind them a little bit yeah you can't make the leap to like metaphysical explanations of things but you understand why the brain does it that's what you're yeah. saying yeah, yeah yeah um do you want to talk real briefly about his like hallucination experiences in the 70s did you read about um, that he had some i guess they they could be described as mental health issues though we don't know that our reality is actually real so correct who knows what actually correct sir um he suffered from extensive hallucinations in which he believed he was living two parallel lives one as philip k dick in the present day and one as thomas a christian in the first century a.d who's being persecuted by romans now this i guess he wrote a semi-autobiographical, and I think that really earns the semi. Yes, it part does. Of that label, he wrote a book about it called "The Exegesis of Philip K. Dick." Yeah, yeah. Um, so, in February of 1974, Dick was recovering from dental surgery, <laughs> and he was on sodium pentothal, which is a barbiturate. Uh, from Abbott Laboratories, the internet tells me. Um, and it's a general anesthetic that he was on, rapid onset. And uh, he was waiting for the delivery of some more analgesic, and the delivery woman was wearing a pendant with a symbol that he called the Vesicle Pisces, which seems to be a conflation of two related symbols, kind of the early Christian version of the Jesus fish. Um, and the symbol for Pisces. And after the woman left, he began experiencing strange visions that related to how, like, light bounced off of her necklace. And that's when he started seeing visions of Christ and started believing that he and that woman were also people from ancient early Rome, like early Christian times. Um, he once told another author, Charles Platt, I experienced an invasion of my mind by a transcendentally rational mind as if I had been insane all of my life and suddenly I had become sane. So I'm not going to impose my reality on you, Philip K. Dick, but I worry <laughs> that you have that backwards. <laughs> oh, no. Well, it's, what's interesting to me is like, I don't think about that kind of what I kind of really love about doing this show uh, is that the one thing what the one thing other than (laughs) like, you know, saying goofy stuff to you is uh, when someone who's this kind of respected canonical writer, like I had heard of Philip K. Dick a lot before we started on this show. I will admit I have not read any Philip K. Dick, so I'm interested to talk about this book, Um, but he is kind of this by the many science fiction stories he has influenced, he has, he has outshone his own work, I think. 
Um, but then you start to drill down, and he's like hallucinating off dental medication, and he's super into Carl Jung, who's like a psych psychiatrist psychologist who people still kind of think of as maybe being a mystic even though he's influential and it's a lot messier than i think just like yo this guy has stuff on the shelf at the library makes it seem you know what i mean yeah like you always you always find you find stuff out that you just didn't you didn't think would even be a thing like um who is it? Is it Arthur Conan Doyle who like believes in fairies or something? Yeah, like, yeah, totally. It's, it's finding these like weird little <laughs> facts that don't make it into like the sixth grade lesson on whoever this person was. Well, yeah. And so I've been missing out on it this whole time. I didn't know <laughs> that anybody thought that fairies were actually a thing. And now I know. It's great. That's true. They're still there. Um, of course, uh, we talked about it briefly, but Philip K. Dick's probably his most famous short story, or no, it was a novel, actually, excuse me, uh, is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which was the basis of Blade Runner. Do um, they? I have no idea. Okay. Uh, that's all I'll say about that. Um, but that seemed, seems concerned with, you know, what is real? What is a real person? What is authenticity? Uh, uh, as David after dentist once said, is this real life? Seems to be the <laughs> primary question of Philip K. Dick's work. Noted mes- metaphysical scholar, <laughs> David, David after, after dentist. <laughs> so, <laughs> Andrew, why don't you tell me about this book that you read so I stopped citing YouTube videos? All right. Um, I was trying to work like a sneezing panda reference in there somewhere, but... <laughs> I don't think I can do it. Um, so Man in the High Castle, like I said, published in 1962, won a Hugo Award. Um, the reason I picked it up is because Amazon just like greenlit a series based on it. Like they published, oh, okay. they released a pilot. And that's just, that's a weird sentence to say. We don't need to get super into it. But like Amazon.com is is making critically acclaimed television series. Yeah, I want to go back and watch that Um the one with the guy from Jeffrey Tambor. Yeah, what is that um, called? Um, it's called Transparent. Thank you. I knew it was a play on transgender, but I didn't know what the I couldn't call it the word. I really want to go back and watch Transparent. Good yeah, for you, Amazon. Yeah, that's been it's it been uh, widely widely praised, and I, I like Jeffrey Tambor. So yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get there eventually. Um, but yeah, like I can't wait to start watching like heavy prestige dramas produced by like Toys R Us in cooperation with Payless <laughs> Shoe Swords. <laughs> like these, all these, all these brands are just run amok. It's crazy. Well, and it's weird. Cause like you and I could theoretically sell something on Amazon. Like we use Amazon links on the website. Right. But like I have sold used things on Amazon and Amazon's going to make Emmy acclaimed tv series so the transitive property says that we could make an emmy nominated tv series yeah pretty easily is what i'm saying right okay um and the and the thing about the discussion of this book like i don't actually want to get too into like a blow-by-blow plot synopsis because there i mean there there is there are a couple story threads and things that happen Uh uh-huh but i 
like the book just kind of uses them to explore it's the the universe that it's in and the thematic stuff that it's trying to say so those are the things that i think i'm gonna focus on a little bit more rather than getting into the you know this happened and then this happened and blah 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 that sounds fine with me um but yeah like like i mentioned the the thrust of it is what if the axis powers had won world war ii so what is the and time when I, frame when, yeah of the book itself when I mentioned, by the way, when I mentioned this to Susanna, um, what she meant to ask was whether it was like a novel or like a more straight laced, like what if history book, I think. Uh huh. Do you know, do you know the dis- distinction between those two things? Yes. Like, is it uh, written as a textbook or is it written as a story? Right. Okay. Yes. But what she, the way she asked me that question was, is it fiction or nonfiction? <laughs> <laughs> so this is fi- this is fiction, or is it? <clears throat> okay. um, so to, to answer your question, the book takes place in 1962, which in this universe is 15 years after World War II ends. Um, there is a single departure point, more or less, from our from our universe. Um, in this universe, FDR is assassinated. Okay. Um, there's this guy Giuseppe Zangara who people think tried to assassinate FDR. I think he succeeded in assassinating the mayor of Chicago and a few other people, but he in the real world. Mm, yeah, in the real world. Oh wow! And uh, but missed FDR, and so for for this book, that assassin assassination attempt succeeded and america had this string of like milk toast presidents who couldn't get us out of the depression pursued uh, an isolationist stance toward world war ii mm-hmm. and when the time came to it we just were not able to help our allies or defend our own borders and so like if you if you look up anything about this book you'll find like the we- the redrawn world map but oh, um, let me course. lay out let me lay out the most important bits for you because it all does take place in in what we know as the united states of america okay so on the west coast you've got the pacific states of america um which is the section of america that's under japanese control okay um on the east coast in the midwest like down in in florida and along um a lot of the gulf coast you've got uh what's still called the united states of america but it is just like a nazi puppet state oh wow okay and then you've got like a buffer zone in between um that's just kind of referred to as like the rocky mountain states or something rocky mountain high yeah so they i mean they, they've basically split the entire world up between them like like the nazis conquered russia japan conquered china australia like the, the, all those islands in the in the pacific so it's really only those two countries that made out okay yeah, and um, like was Mussolini just kind of like screwed? Like, hey guys, there is, hey guys, there is <laughs> on this map something called the Italian Empire, but they are not—they're kind of non-entities in this. I really hope it says on the map something field. called the Italian Empire. No, it's just Italian Empire. Okay. <laughs> um, and there are—I mean, there there are are differences in this book that are based on like real world things. Yes, of course. That that were in the works. Like there was this um there was this engineering project 
um, devised by this guy named Hermann Sorgel. Okay. A German guy. His plan was to drain the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, that, that's an oversimplification, but that's the, that's the uh, form it takes in this book. The Mediterranean Sea has been drained and like repurposed as farmland. Um, being Jewish is not cool. And most of the ones that are left have changed their names and even their appearances and do not, you know, do not go about freely I, I wouldn't um, imagine, for obvious no. reasons. Um, and, you know, that that sort of Nazi, like the genetic purity part of their whole deal. Has that just kind of gone completely it's, amok? Like it, yeah, it is just like the whole deal? Like they've colonized Africa and and killed most of the native people, like slavery is back in a big way oh no <laughs> um it's just not it doesn't seem like an awesome place to live nope doesn't at all um the 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 japanese part of i mean and we do spend most of our time in san francisco and like on the west coast the japanese part of this this deal seems i don't know it's more subtle it's more of a, a cultural difference conquering yeah. than it is like a like a iron-fisted Nazi type thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's worth so, pointing out that uh, Dick grew up in that area, right? Like he moved around a little bit, but his wife did uh, not his wife, his mom. <laughs> whoops. Um, oops. His mom did like end up divorcing his dad so that she could keep him in California. Um, right. So he grew up in that area and then went to school out there. Yeah. So it makes it makes sense that that would be kind of centered around there. Yeah. But yeah, you've you've got a number of characters in the book, like some white characters who have sort of adapted this this Japanese way of of interesting of seeing themselves and even of like speaking okay and 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 thinking of you know losing face in front of other people which is kind of a or or um, at least that that cultural version of that idea yeah 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 i mean it's it's i i think shame culture is is a word that's usually used that feels it feels a little broad to me but it's it's like it's that kind of thing where you're, where you're always wonder you're always worrying about your position, the interplay between in society honor and, and like and like how you appear in other people's eyes, honor versus shame, et cetera. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. Um, and like Hitler's alive, but he's insane because of syphilis, <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of big like Nazi names are still around and just like jockeying for power all the time, and um, there is. <laughs> While the while the Nazis are the more technologically advanced of these two cultures, um, there is there are indications throughout the book, and one character just outright says it at one point that their their whole like their whole genocide deal has not been great for like their economy because if you just keep killing everyone who's not like you, there are not that many people left. Well, y- yeah. And so their their government is is pretty unstable, and it's kind of reliant on gimmicks. Like they're trying to go to Mars, they just like rely on these distracting things to to keep people's minds off of off of their very real problems. Yeah, I, I would imagine so. Um, what else? So there there are subtle ways in which this world reflects the the world as we know it. Like Germany and, and Japan are in the sort of Cold War where they're they coexist really uneasily next to one another and yeah. like and germany has the bomb and japan doesn't 
Okay. And so there's that, there's that tension there too. And there's actually there, one of the subplots in the book is about this thing called project dandelion, which is a, a German plot that is, that is going to attack the home islands is what Japan is referred to in this book as, which I thought was kind of a nice yeah, yeah. touch. Um, they're going to attack Japan with the, with they're going to drop nukes on Japan. Of course. Yeah. So it's, it's just this, it's, it's a lot of stuff, but the, the more, in, the most interesting thing about, especially like the first half of the book, as Dick is kind of introducing you to this universe is how everybody talks about, the world that they're in and like picking up on these little points of differentiation. Like there are Nazi rallies in Madison square garden. New York was like rebuilt by the, by Germans after I assume it was just bombed out by Germans. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so how is it told Andrew? Is it told from the perspective of specific characters? You've got, um, a cast of probably like half a dozen ish characters, give or take one or two. Um, and it, it jumps around in perspective, between you know, from character to character. Most of them are intertwined in some way, like whether they actually meet, or whether they just kind of know each other, or whether they run into each other without even knowing it. Like there, there is a, there is a, like a core cast of characters, but you jump around from perspective to perspective. Um, usually from chapter to chapter. Sometimes a couple times within chapters. Okay. And that's how you kind of experience this world is through people who are just like remembering stuff that happened and giving you their, their take on it. And are they just talking to the reader? Are they like, is it over their shoulder or they're thinking to themselves and you, you hear their thoughts and you see what they say to other people and how they act and that kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah. It's like, it's, a really close third person mm. kind of thing, I guess. That seems fair. Um, but you were kind of saying you're not as interested in the plot of it. Is that because there is? It's not even. It's not even that I'm not interested in the plot. Just that I think the plot is, at least in my estimation, of secondary importance. Like I think the world is the most interesting character. Okay. In the book. And then, like, the thematic stuff that Dick is doing with, with what reality is is the, is the other more interesting thread. And the, and the story just exists mostly to draw out those, those themes and, and talk about that stuff. Well, so let's get into how he questions reality. So you've kind of set up the alternate reality that he's established where it's this other Cold War. And I understand, like, it's actually an interesting thing to posit in the, I guess now, early 60s when he's writing this, right, or maybe even late 50s, is you have the two superpowers that have won the war are then, they sit at the table and go, well, now what? I mean, Right, yeah, I mean, there's the, there's this, it seems like it's an inevitable kind of thing where you have these, these partnerships that are made out of, like mutual desperation almost i guess yeah and once your common enemy has been vanquished well like now what now you've just got all the differences that that made you so uneasy in the first place well and your your plan was never to defeat this enemy and then unify into some glorious new thing right your your plan was oh well it serves both of us to defeat this person or this entity mm-hmm. and then you you rally your war economies to do so 
and now what? So, you know, I'm I am right now realizing that I'm summarizing about 50 years of really well-written historical papers on the Cold War. <laughs> uh, but that does seem to be what Dick is kind of drawing a parallel to here. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and okay, get this. Like one major thematic thing in this book is that there is an alternate history within this alternate history. Stop. What? Where this guy, uh, what's his name? I wrote it down. This guy named uh, Hawthorne Abinson. Hawthorne Abinson? Abinson. Abinson. Has written this book called The Grasshopper Lies Heavy, which is a book which posits that the Allies won World War II. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> Whoa, hey, now. So in this universe where the Nazis and Japan won the war, there is this book about what would have happened if the U.S. and Britain basically had won the war. <laughs> okay, where does that... Okay, so how does Dick handle that book? I mean, you, we could talk about two things. Uh, I want to talk about how Dick handles that book, like in the telling of his own story. And I also want you to just tell me about this alternate, alternate universe. You can pick one of those two. Choose your own mostly, adventure. Go. Mostly he handles the book by having all the characters in his book read it and talk about it a lot. Is it wishful thinking on their part? Are they like, man, I really wish Sometimes. this book had been what happened? Sometimes. Because it does seem like a more optimistic book like you do you do get direct passages from it sometimes and it's important to note that even though this is a book where the allies won it's a book about how the allies had won in a world where the axis powers actually won yeah he's so not just not telling actually, the true story right quote yeah it just okay. it, it doesn't actually mirror our reality it's a it's a slightly different version of it and 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 the the similarities and differences are kind of kind of interesting just just like the similarities and differences in the in like alternate universe prime are <laughs> are interesting okay um so in the in the fictional fictional universe america and britain are the two powers that come on top well duh come out on top not not america and russia as happened in actual reality because britain was like kind of a bombed out husk of its former self in the in the real world and that was not the case here. Hey, they were very strong, Andrew. Don't disrespect. No, I'm sorry. They I mean they were good. Good job, guys. Thank you. <laughs> and so America and Britain both set about like expanding their influence throughout the world. Now, is the British Empire still a thing? Yes. Oh, okay. And I assume that the sun never sets on it. On the Union Jack. <laughs> Um, the the I don't know the short version I guess is that America is presented as like the more philanthropic of the two nations like there's just like racism ends in 1950 something it's just done just completely like, like we're all good instead of instead of doing like the protracted thing where racism still is around and still blows um, apparently just they just decide not to have racism anymore in 1950 and then they set about expanding the new deal to the rest of the world so like dropping really cheap TVs down on 
wait, wait, poor and developing, poor and developing countries. The New Deal was just TVs. Well, no, they would drop the TVs, and then those TVs would show people how to like farm better and how to do stuff better. (laughs) So they're like trying to solve hunger and whatever with TV airdrops. Yeah, and there's actually there's a. uh, there's an artificial moon that America has constructed to, to spread TV signals throughout the world, I, which is no. which sounds weird until you think that that's just what a satellite dish is. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Um, so America is like, oh, the world is cool. Let's like rah rah world, but but Britain is like, well, what's best. What do I get out of it? What's best for Britain? God, that what's sounds be- like Benedict Cumberbatch. That sounds like Benedict Cumberbatch through and through. What is in it for me? <laughs> what part do I get to play in this? And so by the end of that book, like America has faded because of weak leadership and because I guess they didn't want it bad enough. And wait, what? Britain- America has always wanted it too bad. How did that and, happen? And Britain, which is run by like this ninety-year-old despotic Winston Churchill. Oh, no. Has taken over the world, basically. So that's not as sunny of a book, I guess. So that's cool. So how does that book play out in this other alternate universe? And what does that say about our current universe? So here's the deal. There's this book called the I Ching. That is a real book. That is like a uh, a divination text that... um, the Japanese kind of brought over with them. It's a it's a Chinese book, but the Japanese are responsible for spreading it into America and, and other places. Now wait, wait, um, wait, wait! You said it's a real book. Yeah. In that it exists outside of Philip K. Dick's story. It exists for for really real. Now where, but it's Chinese, but the Japanese like it. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah, that's basically in the real world. Yeah, well, in the book. In the real world, I don't know. I just know that it exists in the real world. I didn't do extensive research into into how it actually works. Okay, that's fine. World. Tell me about Philip K. Dick's I Ching. Well, it's just a, it's a text that a lot of the characters in the book consult for advice. And some of them are like afraid to do anything without consulting its advice and like interpreting the results. Pourquoi? Um, just because. Just because they do. Okay. Um, and so one of the characters tracks down the author of the grasshopper lies heavy. Uh huh. And, and this, this person is actually the man in the high castle. Because ah. I'm, I'm like the, the dust jacket of his book, Hawthorne Abinson, um, says that he lives in like this fortified estate, which makes sense because the Nazis don't love this book and it's been banned. In the Nazi part of the world. Well, I can see why. Yeah. Um, but basically, he, the author and and one of the characters in this book get into a conversation about, like, how this book was written. And it was written, like, in consultation with the I Ching. And the question becomes, is this just a really good work of fiction? Or it did, like, this oracle write it? And I get the end result of all this stuff is basically that the world, the fictional world that these characters are living in is revealed to them as not actually the real world. And there's this one, there's another sequence where another one of the characters has this experience where he briefly is in um, 
what is like a recognizably our San Francisco no. instead of the Pacific States of America San Francisco. Okay. And so there's just these these blurrings of of lines between our world and fictional universe number one and fictional universe number two. Okay. Where it's just kind of implied that there is no there's no single reality. Like these are all possible realities. And that's and that's how it ties into to Philip K. Dick's worldview, I guess, is that we we can't be sure what was real. We can't we can't be sure that what's real for us is real for everybody. And, you know, that's pretty much the deal. Well, I mean, I get that from a like neuroscience point of view. I understand that. Like, I understand that the room that I experience is different. And I don't mean the Tommy Wiseau film. I mean that if you and I are sitting (laughs) in a room, like our experience of it can be slightly different based not only in the fact that you and I will be occupying different like space. Like we can't literally occupy the same space, but we can try. We could, I mean, we have tried. Um, Wait, what? (laughs) Fifty Shades was last week, um, but that uh, like you and I will experience the world differently. Just functionally, we will experience it differently. Well, like here's the thing: like you're red, green, colorblind. Uh, not completely. Thank you. You, but are, I have trouble with see, some colors. Thanks. You can't see any colors. That's not true. Because your eyes are wrong. <laughs> My eyes exist in a in a fictional reality where some colors don't have as clear names as other colors. And inside that fictional reality there are other colors who exist in a fictional reality where they sort of look the same. <laughs> okay, Philip K. Dick. Why don't you why don't you cool your jets over there? But that My point is Yeah, okay. that that is an example of how you and I are going to perceive the world around us differently. Like functionally, does it make a difference? Like 99.9% of the time, unless we're playing some game and you're having trouble, like telling one set of, of game pieces from another set of game pieces. No, it's not going to make a difference Uh, to the listeners. This is largely a problem with the popular board game ticket to ride. Andrew, (laughs) you can make continue. (laughs) But it's still it's still there. It's yes. still a difference, yes. and it's one that we, I mean, it just doesn't come up, and we don't even think about it. But apparently, like, you think about it all the time. Oh, I think about it a lot. But what's normal for me, <laughs> and for like literally everybody else, is not what's normal for you. That is correct. It's been my whole life. <laughs> okay, so that's like a, that's like a practical example. Now, I'm not saying that there is somebody who has this strange eye problem where they think that the nazis won world war ii okay but that's just like an expanded that's like someone's grandpa somewhere has that eye problem an extremely exaggerated version of the same is that what dick is trying to tell us or do you think he like legitimately thought this was the world and so he was just finding ways to express it you know do you know the difference i'm trying to i do not i cannot tell so like did he was he trying to use a story to point out how kind of subjective our experience was? I think that's it. Okay. I don't know what your second thing is, but that that I think my second one right. was like sort of like the first one but only slightly different, which is basically huh. everything <laughs> Philip K Dick wrote. Um just the idea that like 
was he literally just trying to put pen to paper on a thing he was experiencing? At this point in his life, I don't think so. This is 12 years before that weird wisdom tooth operation. No, no. Th- I don't think this was a firsthand experience of his in any in any way, shape, or form. I think it's just a... It's the thing about blurring the lines between reality and fiction and making you question, like, what's real and what isn't, because... I don't know, like, like even in the even in the Grasshopper book, where you know Germany lost, there are still tons of differences. Like, it, it could have gone down any number of different ways, and we just have, you know, based on this book, we have three of them. We have the way that you and I are familiar with. We have the way that the characters in this universe are familiar with, and then we have the way that it unfolds in this in this fictional fiction book. Well, and it's also there's the element of like history being written by the winners too, right? Like the reason that that second layer down is banned and censored in Germany is because it tells an alternate history to what the quote unquote victor claims happened. Um, yeah. I mean, to, to some extent, I think the history written is written by the victors thing has more to do with, historical texts i guess and the way things are remembered like multiple generations down the line which is not something you get into very much in in this book like it's it's yeah toward the beginning it's it's kind of acknowledged by one of the characters that the that you know kids born after the war ended are just that's just going to be normal yeah for them. like yeah. they're not going to have this this unease that comes with being kind of an occupied territory yeah, but I think where they remember what it was like before. But you know? but I think that there are like elements of that today that are very relevant in terms of like the control of of information in the di- in the digital age. Not to get all Edward Snowden on you right now or anything, but like <laughs> the control of information in the digital age. I guess like in relationship to what I've read about other Dick stories and novels, um, is that the quote unquote reality that we are handed to us often come often is like strongly informed by, if not handed to us directly by whatever the authority above us is. Right. Yeah. Um, whatever, whatever high school civics textbook we read. Yeah. And is like how we first come into contact with, with history and stuff. Like I was thinking about this just the other day. I was not aware that partisanship existed Oh, yeah. Until like 2003 or 2004, because in the history book, it's just like, oh, now Ronald Reagan is president and this and this and this happened. It's <laughs> well, and no one tells you it doesn't get into how people think that he like ruined the economy or what. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to get like, <laughs> but even, I don't want to get political. I'm just saying things that things that people have said well, about about that. I remember the first time that I learned that like at a cent- at there was a period in time where the Democrats and the Republicans in America believed the exact opposite of what they believe now. Right. And like civil rights, that happened. somewhere along the line, like civil rights caused a switch or something like you think. Of- just, I think it's just the mass freaky Friday type <laughs> thing. They all went out for Chinese food. They all woke up in each other's bodies. Yeah, they all went out for Chinese food and then woke up as Lindsay Lohan. It was really weird. <laughs> This is weird. All right, Herbie the Love Bug, let's go to work at Congress <laughs> and make some laws. I'm for big government and I'm for no civil liberties. Weird. It's not how I was before. <laughs> you know what I think we need to bring back is the Whig Party. Yeah. 
I think they like if we I'd go to one of those this party around wearing awesome wigs. I mean, I don't the wig party was like I don't know, were they states rights? I think that was the deal. It was like the wig party and the sure. Federalists or something. Sh- sure. I watched the miniseries, the HBO miniseries John Adams recently and I've already forgotten. All I remember about that is how sexy that was when they took off his wig. So Oh yeah, they did. Ooh, ooh, that was hot. That was pretty good. Yeah. Good job. Thanks, Paul Giamatti. Good job, Laura Linney. <laughs> <laughs> what else do you Anyway, <laughs> I want a political party that is mostly centered around wearing and curating cool wigs. It's called the Cool Wig Party. Yeah. Twenty sixteen. Twenty sixteen. Andrew, uh before we go this week, is there anything else we should talk about regarding the man? And his high castle? No, I think that's pretty much it. And and maybe part of this is because we ran over like half an hour last week. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> um, I have not watched the Amazon pilot. I think I'm going to based on this just to see. Well, it seems right for and I, world As far building, as I know, yeah. that is like that's available now. and You can just go watch it for free. Um, I guess I just want to ask you real quick before we go, like, a lot of his stories seem to center on a central protagonist or, or something kind of finding out about the world. Is there what you seem to respond to most with this book was the world building element of it. Were there any characters that kind of drew you in or that you were particularly attached to, or were you kind of more fascinated by the bigger stuff? Um, I think people who are big fans of this book would probably say that um, this character um, Juliana Frank is the most important one. Okay. Cause she's the one who actually ends up having this, this conversation with the man in the high castle. And, and she's sort of a focal point in the story in a lot of ways. And, and, and it's, it's complicated because not only are you already like two alternate universes deep when you're having this conversation, but sure. you get the impression that she is herself kind of an unreliable an unstable narrator. Oh, and that's a hallmark of uh, Philip Dick stories also. So, yeah. yeah. But um, the characters, I mean, there was one guy whose name was just cool. His name was Frank Frink. That's a great name. And he'd actually, his real name was Frank Fink because he was a Jewish guy who who changed his name to, to Frank. All right. Avoid detection. And like, dude, you should probably like Frank Fink to Frank Frank. <laughs> <laughs> At least go to like Frank Frank. Like, come on. <laughs> Frank Frank. Come on down to Frank Frank's used cars. <laughs> Frank Frank, buy a car. <laughs> oh, my God. When you buy a Frank, you know you're getting the best. <laughs> well, our deals are so Frank and good that you won't leave. <laughs> Not even in the car you bought. Come on down to Frank Frank dealership. Frank Frank. The character who I found the most complex and interesting is this guy named um, Robert Childen. Also a pretty sweet name. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing that 100% correctly. That's but cool. Let's we'll go with it. Um, he is a white guy who lives in San Francisco. He runs this, um, I guess you'd call it like an antique shop. Basically, in this in this universe, Japanese people are kind of obsessed with pre-war americana interesting yeah i could see and that so his business exists mostly to find this stuff and to sell it to people interesting and um he 
on the surface has really tried to assimilate into Japanese culture. I think probably at least in part because that's who he's doing most of his business with. But um, whenever he gets to thinking about it very hard, it's clear that he still really, really does not like them. Yeah. Okay. And I found that that rang true for me. I mean, not. I'm not saying that I'm super racist or anything. I'm just <laughs> saying that for. I mean, for for a guy who lived, you know, like before the war, and then is trying to rebuild a life in like this occupied territory. There, I mean, it's it's really fraught to like have to do business with people who you probably saw as the enemy at, at one point. And, How does um, this ring true for you, Andrew? I'm just saying it, it seems like something that a person would. Okay. It seems like a real person. Okay. You, I'm not, I'm not saying that it like it resonated with me personally. When that, like that time you lived in occupied France or something super like <laughs> secretly racist. I just like imagine that that's, that's the kind of stuff you must have to suppress or have to deal with. Oh yeah. If you're a person living in, in what is basically occupied territory. Well, and I wonder not to take it too far afield, but I, I wonder if there, if there's things that like American soldiers abroad have to deal with in terms of countries and populations that we are ostensibly helping, um, where citizens know that that is probably the case but they might not like it or they might not like why it's being done or something like that and like or even that like we we have the best of intentions i guess ostensibly but we are doing a really ham-fisted job and just not we're hurting more than we're helping yeah which i think is is something that that happens not infrequently with some of our foreign aid no. efforts. The, as as you said, ham-fisted all. I could think it was ham-fisted hegemony is basically our foreign <laughs> policy sometimes. Um, so, yeah, I, I, that is a very human uh, situation. I get that. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what I meant to say. Um, I don't know why. <laughs> that's okay. I want to get to listener stuff for other episodes. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done. That's, that's, that's okay. Man in the High Castle. The pilot for the Amazon show is available for free. Um, at least for Amazon Prime customers. Uh-oh. I don't know if you're if you're, if you're such a, if you're a shill, Andrew. If you're a normie on Amazon, like if you if you just get non-prime stuff, I don't know if you can watch it or not. But it's up there. It's been picked up. I don't know when it will. You know, the series will be ready. But I assume, given like the realities of TV production, that you know this time next year is probably a safe bet. Yeah, probably. Um. Real quick, did this kind of resonate with you on the Vonnegut meter, like in the the way that you enjoy a Kurt Vonnegut? Because it seems like there's some similarities there. Kurt Vonnegut is funnier. Okay, fair. This is this is there are not a lot of moments of levity to break this up. Okay, which isn't to say that it's uninteresting or or boring or anything. It's just Vonnegut has a has a stronger voice i think well and, and his world building is satirical yeah his world building is satirical in a way that dick sounds like it isn't dick's is no less commentary but perhaps not at least not as overtly absurd satirical. yeah yeah okay just checking um i think we talked about it on our 100th episode uh but uh, we got you know several emails about the stories of the show, and I I couldn't remember if we talked about Albie. We did. I think we I think we talked about most of them. All right. 
Um, so I'll just give a one more shout out to Albie's email about Portnoy's complaint and the the liver and the absurd things that Portnoy did with liver because um, Albie wrote in. I couldn't remember if we talked about that. I don't know if we did. Or yeah. Not. Uh, so Albie thanked us for talking about the liver on that episode. So go back and listen to that because that was gross. Uh, <laughs> also, Jillian wrote in about our Ray Bradbury podcast. Uh, spoiler alert. That's my sister who wrote in. Um, she was spoiler. Alert? I don't know. Uh, I meant to say uh, the other thing that journalists have to say. What's that thing? Like full disclosure. Yeah, full disclosure. I said spoiler alert instead. Spoiler alert! <laughs> like, oh no, that we were saving that for the season two finale <laughs> is to reveal to the audience that Jillian is your sister. Yeah, it was. Um, we were talking about being different ages or wishing we were different ages on the Ray Bradbury podcast, and she mentioned my whole thing after after college about like growing a beard for work stuff which is actually a good point because i did you know i have embarked on a career where sometimes i'm telling people what to do when i direct shows and sometimes they're you know decades older than me and sometimes they're not um and so the beard helps and i have a baby face like very few people at this point in my life have (laughs) seen me without my beard i have i look like a doofus sometimes without my beard <laughs> and uh so yeah i i i definitely have cultivated as as a sense of kind of visually representing the personality i i believe i am on the upside when you're 58 and you want to look younger again just shave it off <laughs> and you look awesome who's that 30 year old guy what is he doing who's that teen hanging out at the at the coffee shop <laughs> He must be cool. He's been sitting there all day, and he's barely moved an inch. It's weird. <laughs> Seems rad. Uh, I also want to... So if you... <laughs> that's all I have. Um, if you want to email in your weird thing about whatever we said, uh, you can do that at overduepod at gmail.com. You can also send Facebook messages to facebook.com slash overduepod. Uh, there are plenty of people who reached out about the Fifty Shades episode... Uh, which was really great. We didn't really give a shout out to Colleen who pointed out the 50 shades like bear that people were selling. It was like a bear that came with handcuffs and stuff. It was really dumb. It's very cute. Um, so I want to thank people for that. People have also been tweeting about the show recently. It's been really wonderful. Sean, Amanda, uh, Robert, J deep, uh, bookish girl, uh, on Twitter. Um, Sadia, Lee, Amber, uh, Tisephany, and Jay, and Tanya, and Kelly, and Tracy, and Rachel, and Chrissy, and Jay again, and Nada, and a whole bunch of other people, and I'm sorry if I missed you, I've been tweeting about the show, and it's a great way to spread the word, thank you so much. Andrew, what else could people do if they wanted to help the show grow? (laughs) I don't even remember what you've covered at this point. But um, the one new thing that we talked about last week during the Fifty Shades podcast was our Patreon project, which is, um, long long story short, is a way for people to pledge money to us every month that helps us with hosting costs and book buying costs. Um, we just announced this last Monday with the, with the Fifty Shades show, and then I think on Tuesday we first published a link on... Um, on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash overdue pod. And then our Twitter page is, is twitter.com slash overdue pod. Uh, go to those, have fun. Um, 
Yeah, so we announced this about a week ago, and we had an early milestone goal that was to get $50 per month in pledges, which I'm going to put together, like, as, as people donate, I'm, I'm going to try to put together updates to show people where their money is going, because I think that's just, the, like, the cool thing to do. Yep. But basically, that, that covers hosting plus a book every week, basically. Yep. And we reached, we broke that goal in about a week. It was pretty awesome. It was pretty Pretty awesome, you guys. Thank you so much. So um, everybody who's donated so far, thank you so much. Um, We've got emails about rewards. Um, One has gone out. Another one I still need to send. Um, If you want to donate and you haven't already, you can go to patreon.com slash overdue pod. We've got a few different reward tiers that will give you different stuff if you pledge at different levels per month. But even if you just want to give us like a dollar per month, that just it adds up really, really fast. Um, our next goal is at $150 per month. At that goal level, we will start producing an extra bonus episode every month that uh, patrons will get early access to. So that's that's what's next on our horizon. I, you know, when we put together these goals, I was not sure we were going to hit any of them, but now I'm like filled with renewed optimism about the Yeah, I'm kind of hungry for it. <laughs> so help us out if you can. Yeah, so that's patreon.com slash overdue pod. Um, also on our website, overduepodcast.com, we still have Amazon links to the books that we have read that we're going to read. If you hear us talk about a book that you are interested in, go ahead and click those links and buy the book. We get a little cut of that, which, uh, which you know, helps our financial situation overall, though, you know, um, full disclosure, I guess, is that that, is, that has never been enough to cover our, our hosting or anything like that. It's been it's been a very small supplemental stream of income so if you support us that way that's amazing but i think you know based on how the last week has gone the patreon is going to end up being our primary source of income at this point you know going forward but what else you can find on the website or other ways to support the show because we really have grown a lot in the past year and the patreon is like one phase of that so that we can kind of finance the next stage of of the show in terms of growing it and producing more stuff for you guys but also the best thing you can do uh, regardless of any other way you want to support the show is go on itunes write a review rate us it helps more listeners find us and it helps uh, more book recommendations come our way more new ideas and, and new thoughts, which is really what all the, the, this show is about. So, And we also have Stitcher and RSS links, so you can subscribe to the show pretty much any way you want. And, um, and yeah, just spread the word however you can. Um, Craig, what are you going to be reading next week? I'm reading Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston, which I know was a listener uh, recommendation. And by the time of next week's recording, I'll be able to tell you perhaps who that listener was. <laughs> I think it was several <laughs> listeners actually. So I, I might have a list. If not, I'll just give a general shout out. It's um, uh, maybe a third of the way through right now. And it's, it's pretty good. It'll be in, it'll make for an interesting discussion. If you have read the book, uh, please send us your thoughts or questions or queries uh, to any of the ways that we mentioned maybe about five or 20 minutes ago. Uh, depending on how long this outro has gone. Yeah, and we'd man, be we happy to, to talk about it on the show. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay, everybody. Uh, we've taken up enough of your time. Thank you so much for your support. Thank you for listening. Uh, we will be back next Monday. And in the meantime, everyone, try to be happy. None of this is real.